2: Hello, Culture Gap Fest listeners. Dana Stevens here. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that right now Slate Plus is having a sale on membership. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's 50% off the usual price. As a member, you'll get zero ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows, like Slow Burn and the Political Gap Fest. Slate's podcasts cover the topics that matter, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. They also cover fun culture topics like hit songs, viral trends, and online debates. So if Slate podcasts have become an important part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work and the work of our colleagues by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com/cultureplus to access all of Slate's content and support our work. Once again, that's only $29 for six months through October 28th. So sign up now at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Thanks.
3: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Fest Plastic Stormtrooper Codpiece Edition. It's Wednesday, October 19th, 2022, on today's show, Tar is the new movie from writer-director Todd Field, his first in 16 years. It stars Kate Blanchett as a world-renowned conductor at the peak of her career. It's also a close study of the microdynamics of power. And then Star Wars, uh, it's had a mixed relationship to the small screen, I think it's fair to say, but critics are hailing Andor as the franchise's best offering since *Mandalorian*, it's the prequel to *Rogue One* and returns Diego Luna as the title character. And finally, how do you sell a hundred million books, tens of millions of LPs at least, then all but disappear from public consciousness? And as a, by the way, as a poet no less, the very strange story of Rod McEwen has been retold by Dan Coyce of Slate. He'll be joining us for a final segment. In the meantime. I'm joined by Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Julia.
0: Hello.
3: Hey, how are you? I'm good. Good. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Dana.
2: Steven, can I just tell our listeners that I'm looking at you right now in all your three dimensional, non projected glory in the same room for I, the first time, definitely since the pandemic started? I
3: feel seen. I'm looking at you too in all of your three dimensional glory. And all the, you know, hidden dimensions to come in the course of the conversation. (laughs) The shell unfurl as we speak. (laughs) Right. The dark labyrinth. Uh, Shall we make a show? Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Um, Kate Blanchett plays Tar, Lydia Tar. And yet that feels like the wrong verb. Blanchett is herself an artist at the very peak of her renown and creative powers, as this movie makes just abundantly clear. And she, what's the word? Like she inhabits becomes, just is, right, bluntly is this woman conductor for the course of this two-hour and 45-minute movie. She's a maestra, a term that Lydia Tarr, the character, hates. Uh, A very rare thing still in the world of classical music, a woman at the podium with the baton playing the orchestra with that kind of total elan of a Bernstein. And as Bernstein once said, playing the orchestra as her own musical instrument. As the movie meticulously shows and never tells us, she plays everything in her life this way. She's brilliant, funny, caustic, and very, very calculating. And she exists in one of the most rarefied spheres of all. But this sphere, along with everything else, including Lydia Tarr, now exists in a a new world. A world of social media, of an aesthetic refinement giving way to uh, moral refinement, and so this movie asks us, can this woman, and that sphere that she's thrived in, coexist with, in the instance of this film and the story, Me Too? The movie also stars Noemi Merlant as the put-upon but worshipful personal assistant, and Nona Haas as Lydia Tarr's first violinist and wife. Let's listen to a clip.
0: Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You know, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together.
3: All right, Daniel, let me start with you. Um, First of all, How miraculously did they find someone who looks and sounds so much like Adam Gopnik to play Adam Gopnik?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is an important thing to know about the context of that that exposition you just heard about her method is that, it's all, I think, very, very cleverly set up at the beginning with this, yeah, this real-time interview. It lasts quite quite a long time, very. that scene, right? And it's the, the movie's first extended scene that's a conversation between Lydia Tarr on stage at the New Yorker Festival with Adam Gopnik playing Adam Gopnik, which establishes so much, you know, at once about this kind of rarefied universe that she moves in. Um, it allows her to, as we hear there, kind of lay out her philosophy of conducting, and it lets us get all of her backstory via, you know, Adam Gopnik, somewhat worshipful, unflattering introduction. So you see, you know, the the space that she occupies in the world and the, the person that she imagines herself to be. And then in all kinds of complex and subtle ways that I still haven't completely figured out, maybe you guys can help me understand them. The movie takes that apart, but not in the way that you might think that it would. And I think that is my... Is my biggest defense of this movie to those who might. I'm. I, we can get into what you know some of the criticisms of it could be later, but I think that the thing that most surprised and delighted me about this movie, which I loved uh, and gave a, a rave review in Slate, is that it's mysterious, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's ambiguous, and yet you know it's not ambiguous in a sort of wishy washy sort of way where no. it doesn't draw conclusions, but it is extremely open ended. And it's really, really seductive. The character of Tar is very seductive and we're not seeing the visuals, of course, and hearing that clip, but the world she moves in is very seductive, right? I mean, she's kind of cosseted in all of this privilege and the Mm. movie itself feels very upholstered. (laughs) That was a word that I, I found in my notes. You know, it feels like the movie itself has been sort of, padded and protected as as we first enter her world and that's why you know when less beautiful parts of her world start to intrude on the life she's created for herself um she has so far to fall so there's something there's something about this figure that she cuts at the beginning that's almost like a tragic or shakespearean figure because she is in such a lofty place right she's a kind of royalty in classical music
3: yeah absolutely julia she's she's as dana beautifully said it's something the feeling of the movie you know is meant to convey what this rarefied world is like it's plush it's very insulated it's uh filled with you know very moneyed, good taste throughout anyway let me throw to you what did you make of this film
0: yeah it's first of all just a mesmerizing object and viewing experience i mean Kate Blanchett is almost never not on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're just watching this virtuoso in a film that is about artistic performance, and that adds kind of its own layer, I think. I also found myself a little puzzled by the project, not in a way that made me dislike the film. But if you say, you know, Uh, revered director who's only made two movies and hasn't made any movies in 16 years returns in the Me Too era to make a film about a charismatic artist who is accused of misconduct uh, that is I think not sympathetic to her behavior but quite empathetic and curious about her selfhood, personhood. She's certainly the protagonist. She's a villain, but she's not the villain, you know? Like, what? what is that project? Why is that what you're doing when you're back 16 years later? And what it's doing is not does not feel like polemic, does not feel mm-hmm. political. Like and, and also, why do you make that accused person a powerful woman, right? Like, I mean, to, to give us Cape Lanchette's tar, which is an extraordinary cinematic gift, but that sort of seeds a kind of empathy and sympathy for this powerful artist because of the difficulty of the road of her getting there that that maybe swings it a bit more in the direction of sympathy for the abuser but th- this movie kind of confounds your your instinct to politicize it in mm. a way that is quite odd for a movie that's asking you to like just inhabit the world of an abuser basically right yeah. i mean yeah. there's no there's no real other conclusion um and makes you somewhat sympathetic to and curious about her mechanisms of abuse and i just i found myself like entranced by the movie and then walking away from it having really enjoyed it and also still kind of puzzled by and mulling over what i've seen and why this particular personhood was the subject of curiosity.
3: Yeah, I I a very, very similar set of responses. I mean, somehow the mood and the tone of it would have been shattered if there had been even a whiff of editorializing. Like, I think it, it works as this really deeply contemplative mood piece about about a set of discrepancies, really, right? So if you look at her one way, she's Arguably, a heroic anachronism, right? She's peremptory, egomaniacal, has zero patience for, you know, a culture that in many ways has become inimical to the premises of classical music, right? I mean, it's it's it. You go to a conservatory; it takes immense amounts of discipline. Um, she is upholding a tradition and making it new in some sense as a woman. Who's the new, you know, Leonard Bernstein, in some sense. Um, nonetheless, the movie is not making a case for her at all. She's also, I mean, the movie's, I think, an extraordinary, you know, very, very close-up, microscopic look at how power operates and how abuses of power operate and how they occupy. Uh, they're both tiny, right? They're both micro and in a gray zone, and I I think the movie, it's hard not to conclude that this person, and you know, we never see, again, not to give too much away, we never see the specifics of the uh, incident that's going to bring her pretty inevitably, we feel is going to bring her down. Um, we only catch it in these v- verite fragments in a way, right? It's part of the, like, don't don't go too heavy on exposition in this film. Let the let the viewer figure it out. But what we do see is her repeating the process with a new, you know, classical music ingenue. And then we see how she really does abuse her power, how she plays the world like her orchestra, but in this regard to feed her ego and her appetites not to make great art. So... There ought to be limits to your sympathy, but there's no polemicism here at it all. It's just rigorously agnostic. The closest I came to feeling like there was at least something resembling not an—I wouldn't say editorial point. I wouldn't curse it with that. It's not didactic, but there is a moment, Dana, where I couldn't help thinking of the contrast between a, a, a very tendentiously edited YouTube video, right, which is very quick and pieces together some of her— Worst statements in a classroom and maybe publicly as well um, into something that's both true and untrue. Right. It points to something that really did happen, but is also misleading. The contrast between that and the film we're watching. Right. That that struck me as a moment where I hear the director here for the first time saying, you know, pay attention to what I've done in relation to what. Um, social media uh, can do.
2: Right. I mean, even in terms of the editing, because the the scene that you mentioned that gets, you know, re-edited and put up on, I think, TikTok, yeah. as a, ha- having been edited in a way, such a way as to make her look even more inappropriate and bigoted than she actually was being toward her student in that scene. We've seen that entire scene at the top of the movie. It's exactly. right after the Adam Gopnik scene. And if you notice, we see it without any edits. It's all done in one shot, that scene at Juilliard where she's giving a master class and oh, she offends fabulous. this one student. I didn't so, notice that. you know, the idea yeah. of taking Genius. a single take scene and then showing how it gets chopped up, you know, to be somewhat misrepresented on social media is a really fascinating aesthetic choice as well as a thematic one. But, I mean, let me I'll, – I'll be the – I'll be the devil's advocate and take and tell you the critiques of this movie that I've heard. One yeah. of my closest friends saw it and and hated it and has not yet completely gotten back to me about why. I can't wait to have that conversation about why she and her partner both hated it. Um, but I suspect that it has to do with something that I've seen some critics say about it as well, which is, does it stack the deck in favor of this really seductive and ultimately, you know, as, as incredibly problematic as she is, um, very in some ways, appealing, right, and a magnetic main character by doing things like, you know, showing us that edited TikTok video that we know has been um, molded to make her look maybe more guilty than she was in that moment. Um, also not really ever showing us her main accuser, right? Without giving anything away, there is this one woman from her past she's worked with, who, um, who is the person who ends up making this accusation that starts to to open up the Pandora's box of complaints against Tar. And except in, a, I think, in a dream sequence where we obliquely see her face. We never see that person. We never hear her voice. We maybe see, you know, a few lines of an email that she's written. But she is someone who's off of the scene completely. Right. So an argument could be made. I mean, obviously, this is a very deliberate choice on Todd Field's part not to include that person. But could an argument be made that, you know, the victim is being excluded and turned into someone who's so off of the scene that we sort of have no choice Mm -hmm. but to put our sympathies with Tar?
0: Yeah, I'm almost surprised there isn't more of that response in the public reception to the piece. It may be that it's in sort of a slow release and the folks who've seen it are mostly film critics who are admiring its craft. And maybe if it does become a bigger Oscar movie type, um, you know, make that trajectory through the culture verse, these debates will become louder as more people see the film. But I find myself kind of indignantly wanting to stick up for the movie in response to that critique, which is that i think the film i think you said it best steve it's extremely curious about the mechanisms of power that allow abuse to persist right and it's quite revealing about them as well and um uh, you know some of the monsters we've read about were just monstrous and and um didn't have powers of personal seduction and charisma and genius, but some of the monsters were really talented and pr- and probably really good at manipulation and um, probably a little bit high on whatever power it is that propelled them to the stages where they were interviewed by the Adam Gopniks of their professional milieu, right? Like, I don't... The fact that it treats this monster as human never quite feels to me like an effort to excuse the monstrosity. It merely seems quite curious about how this kind of pain and suffering could come to be. So I don't think the movie is a love letter to an abuser that wants us to excuse her monstrosity, in our admiration for her genius. I think it's almost the exact inverse of that. Um, And I admire the kind of openness of its aperture in scrutinizing this
2: world. That's, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I guess the last thing I wanted to end on was just whatever you think of the protagonist in the end, see this movie. This is one of the yeah. best movies of the year. It's one of the most uh, artistically ambitious movies of the year. And to me, it really announces Todd Field, who's only made two movies so far in his you know more than 20 year career. And they're in the bedroom and little children already two very promising starts. But to me, this seals the deal on him as a major mm-hmm. American filmmaker. So see it if only for that reason alone.
3: Okay, we agree. See it. It's uh It's TAR and it's Kate Blanchett. And right now it's in theaters, not streaming yet, but make the trip. It's worth it.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
3: All right. Now is the moment in the podcast where we discuss various bits of business. Uh, we probably have some this week. Dana, what uh, what's up?
2: Steve, we have but one item of business this week, and that is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about the joy of being read to or reading aloud oneself, either in person or via audiobook. This idea was inspired by an article we saw in The Atlantic titled An Ode to Being Read To by James Parker. In this article, Parker talks about how he cured his insomnia, in part, by listening to audiobooks. We were talking about our own experience of being read aloud to and reading aloud ourselves and thought it might make for a good Slate Plus conversation. So if you're a Slate Plus member, stick around for that segment at the end of today's show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Slate is having a sale on membership right now, so you'll get six months of Slate Plus for just $29, which is 50% off the usual price. If you remember, member, you get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the segment I just described, which many other shows offer as well, and, of course, unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate.com. These memberships matter a lot to us. They keep the lights on, so please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, onward.
3: Okay well Tony Gilroy wrote and directed the movie Michael Clayton one of the better genre pictures of the last I don't know 20 years I don't think it's much older than that uh he was the screenwriter on the Bourne movies he directed the fourth installment the man knows how to deliver a quality genre flick. Star Wars was uh, hardly in need of reviving commercially when he uh, co-wrote Rogue One, but he brought a newness to a series dominated by callbacks and comfort tropes. Uh, the movie was a huge and deserved hit. And now we have Andor, a TV show spinoff on Disney+. Uh, and I, I really mean it. It's a huge relief to see Gilroy's name all over it. It's a prequel to Rogue One. Um and gilroy uh created the show wrote many of the episodes and no coincidence it's getting stellar reviews why don't we listen to a clip in the clip uh, cassian andor expresses contempt for the empire and uh, he talks about how easy it is to steal from them he plays upon their own hubris the man he's talking to is a rebel leader played by the swedish actor stellan skarsgård let's have a listen
1: to steal from the empire what do you need A uniform, some dirty hands, and an Imperial toolkit. (laughs) They're so proud of themselves, they don't even care. They're so fat and satisfied, they can't imagine it.
3: Can't imagine what? That someone like me
1: would ever get inside
3: their house, walk their floors, spit in their food, take their gear. The arrogance is remarkable, isn't it? They don't even think about us. Boss, I don't know you. Fair enough, but I know you. These days will end, Cassianander. The way they laugh, the way they push through a crowd. The sound of that voice telling you to stop, to go, to move. Telling you to die. Rings in the air, doesn't it? All right, Julia, let's start with you. Um, Quite a surprise at this late hour to have a Star Wars uh, franchisee Do something, as critics are saying, fresh and kind of interesting and kind of grown up with the property. What
0: do you think? This is a great show. Um, And it's a little bit of a slow burn. I mean, a la... Tar, actually, weirdly, it's like very confident of its world. It situates you very deeply in a world. It seems funny to admire the world building of a Star Wars project, since obviously the Star Wars world is one of the most fully realized fictional worlds that there is. (laughs) And yet um, the production design of it just makes it feel real. In a way that feels completely different from the like, I'm wearing a plastic stormtrooper codpiece <laughs> kind of tone of the aesthetics of even the most beautiful other Star Wars movies, like the, the, the kind of gritty realism and detail um, really sells something that is also thematically interesting, which is the show is essentially using the Star Wars mythology to ask the question, where does revolution come from? Right. Mm. What causes people to resist power, to band together, to what what causes them to do that as human beings and, and not not sort of like, how do they achieve it with, you know, driving the thing through the little thing to exploit the <laughs> vulnerability and the big thing that the bad guys have, you know, like the so, so much of. The Star Wars films, they have sweeping characters, they have big vistas, they have funny scenes in bars, and, but fundamentally they're about how, right? How do you defeat the bad guy and kind of spectacular acts of daring do? And this film is, asked, this show is asking a much more interesting to me question, which is like, why? Why do you even try mm. to defeat the bad guy when the bad guy seems so powerful? How do you even muster that impulse? Um, which is sort of the genesis of so many of these other films. And I will confess, that for, I think I was sick or moving or I don't know what. I never saw Rogue One. I, I, I missed the the week when we talked about it. And because all of my culture consumption is for the show, I thus never went back and watched it. And I do know what happened at the end of Rogue One. But, um, man, I was impressed. I loved this show.
3: Rogue One's terrific. Dana, what do you think? Did they build a better codpiece?
2: I mean, I agree with everything Julia says about this show's world building being unusual for the Star Wars universe. It doesn't have the Force. It doesn't have any Jedi Knights doing their thing. It doesn't have any of the legacy characters coming in yet. That may happen later. But it doesn't feel like fan service, and I really respect that. It's creating its own much sort of grittier, something out of a spy movie, right, or a a heist movie. It's that kind of world that we're moving in more than a sci-fi epic. But, there, but I mean, I just have to say, until Stellan Skarsgård shows up, which is at the end of the second episode, I yeah. believe, I was struggling to stay awake through this show because it is so, and this may just be how my own taste in TV runs, is that it feels like it is doing. As I saw several critics writing about it say, it's trying to do that, this isn't a show, it's a 12-hour movie yeah. kind of structure, right, where it's not really clear why any episode ends where it ends. It's all telling one big story And it doesn't hit TV beats in a way that you sort of feel like there's a cliffhanger for the next episode. Now, cliffhangers can be manipulative, right? They they can, TV shows can overdo the formulaic beats for sure. But this felt a bit to me like a, unshaped blob of words from Tony Gilroy's pen. And he himself has said, oh, what I've been loving about doing this TV show, he's worked much more in film before, is that I think he says this in an interview, everything that leaves my desk gets shot, right? That he's writing reams upon reams of of world building, and it's all getting turned into a show. I don't know. I feel like this show has a little bit that streaming disease of, you know, it could have been a movie or a five-hour show Mm -hmm. and, and that it's a bit sprawling and misshapen yeah it definitely
3: accordioned out and um you know i read one critic who said uh the kind of kick-in episode where where the the plot really begins to you know the, the pace picks up and becomes more of a traditional genre picture is episode three and i you certainly feel that um uh i liked it i liked it a lot i mean you know to me I saw Star Wars, the original one, when I was in whatever it was, sixth or seventh grade. I can't remember. I saw it nine or so times in the theater back when that was an unusual thing to do. I mean, it just re- kind of remade my sense of the possibilities of, of a certain kind of movie and and loved it. And it, it's been sort of nothing but disappointments ever since in a way. And I, 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 maybe I just kind of got older at the wrong time or something or before my time, but the, the comfort of returning to the world, right? Like we're being sold the world and and the price of a theater ticket is like, is the price of re-entry into the world. And you get all of this like nostalgic throwback content. And over time to me, it's just become Dana. It's become like mixed cinema, you know, it's like, you know, and to cover that up, there's that horrible slow paced self seriousness that these you know, self-important genre pictures now have like, like stretch it out to three hours and on and on. I think this, Julia, I agree with you. I think this, I think this escapes that. I just think it's good TV. And the simple reason is that entry into this world is entry into a world. And it's not like a world that feels somehow real and internally cohesive with actual grown-ups fighting for things they believe in. And, um, and I think it kind of continues through to that moment when it clicks as a genre piece and the action starts. And as you say, Julia, something real has been set up. So by the time that happens, you are invested in it. Um, and it not only does it show you... As you put it beautifully, not only does it show you why someone is willing to sublimate everything else about life to a cause, which Andor famously isn't willing to do, you know, it's kind of the hook for the whole show is that he's not, um, he's more like a Han Solo, vaguely Han Solo type in that he's unaffiliated. But it also shows you how just how pompous and self-justifying, you know, imperial power is in a way that actually I thought was also not cartoony. And so you were like, yeah, fuck the man. Like, fuck the man. Like, like, stick it to them. Send the ash can through the fucking storefront window. Let's burn this shit down. I mean, I just, I don't know. I just thought, like, it kind of worked.
0: And honestly, the show is as curious about the, like, subtle mechanisms of power within the Empire as Tar is about Lydia Tar's manipulations. Like, I haven't seen... I mean, I, I I know that the prequels are famously full of, like, long Senate scenes about, like, tax arguments, and I will confess I haven't seen all three of them, but I don't know, just sort of the, like, office politics. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. scenes within the Empire actually kind of look like Severance. It's, like, um, bitter office drones in a confusing white environment, like, having petty squabbles, and and <laughs> I didn't finish Severance, but, <laughs> um, like, the the... There is as much texture to their debates, their motivations, and as much curiosity actually about like why it is would you become that you would become an empire true believer? There's psychological curiosity on that side as well. Dana, I will confess the first episode and the and the kind of breaks within the first three episodes are a little random. And I also fell asleep at one point when um the the portrait of, uh, childhood Cassian is like mysteriously crouching in the woods, speaking in untranslated language. Um, and I would just encourage you to keep watching. They've articulated that th- that the show is sort of three in three episode chunks that are broken up to be more digestible. Um, and it the the, fin- the third episode is a sock and the thing just keeps, keeps gathering momentum from there. And I really think it's worthy, worthy of the Dana attention.
2: I agree. And once Stellan Skarsgård and Diego Luna meet up, also we haven't talked about Fiona Shaw, but she plays an important secondary character and she is always welcome and great yeah, in everything. Terrific. I mean, the, the actors are so high caliber. Scene by scene the writing is really good. I, there's never a moment when I cringed at the writing or thought, you know, this is, this is hokey or awful or anything like that. It, my complaints would have more to do with sort of form and structure and padding. Like, we don't need to see so much of the young Cassian. We get it. He had a traumatized childhood. I'd rather stick with the Diego Luna character. But in relation to what you guys were saying a moment ago about um, investigating systems of power and what would motivate you to be, you know, an evil representative of the Empire. I really love that secondary character, Cyril Karn, who's the sort of officious suck up yes. to the to the bad guy Absolutely. right he's basically almost like an, an Adolf Eichmann figure right like from, from the Hannah yeah. Arendt investigation yeah. of, of Nazism he's sort of this middle manager who's trying to move up and trying to articulate the philosophy and there's a moment he gives a really wan pep talk <laughs> to a bunch of, of Empire soldiers and it clearly doesn't go over well at all that's just that's not something that we often see no. in the Star Wars universe right is sort of you know the, the toadying member of the of the Empire who's trying to, to work his way up and the actor who plays him i should shout him out is kyle solar but yeah stuff Terrific. like that is, is what gives this a little more texture than you know the mandalorian or something like that and makes me feel like yeah i'll keep watching
0: we also have to shout out before we adjourn this segment that the music for Andor is from official um FOP musical friend of the program nicholas pertel and so that was an additional layer of enjoyment for me
3: all right. Well, the show is Andor. I think we all yeah, more or less like to. You should check it out. It's on Disney Plus. OK, moving on.
1: This is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer. He hears things differently to the untrained ear. Everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: Okay. Well, Rod McEwen sold millions of poetry books in the 1960s and 70s. He was a regular on late night TV, released dozens of albums, wrote songs for Sinatra, and was nominated for two Oscars. So writes Slate's own Dan Coyce in Slate. Uh, Dan,
1: welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on this beautiful, sensual experience.
0: (laughs) It's too early. (laughs) Don't get off
1: too soon,
3: okay? Let's pace ourselves. That's actually an appropriate joke. We'll get there, Dan. We'll get there. Anyway, I love your piece on the poem Rod McEwen. I encountered him repeatedly when I was young. Um, Let me continue quoting a little bit, and then we'll turn to Rod uh, himself. He was a flashpoint in the battle between highbrow and lowbrow brow, with devotees revering his plain-spoken honesty, and Dick Cavett mockingly calling him the most understood poet in America. It's wonderful. Every year on his birthday, he sold out Carnegie Hall. Okay, Dan, take it away. We have a recording from one of those Carnegie
1: Hall birthday parties. Uh, In this recording, Rod's reciting his most famous and beloved poem, A Cat Named Sloopy, a sentimental but exciting story of Rod's years in New York when uh, his beloved cat greeted him every night when he returned from his erotic adventures, his dalliances with Ben or Lillian. But then one winter, Rod stays away too long, and when he returns, Sloopy's gone, and he searches for Sloopy, screaming her name through the dark New York City streets. But he never finds her, and here's what he says.
3: But once upon a time, in New York's jungle in a tree, Before I went into the world in search of other kinds of love.
1: Nobody owned me but a cat named Sloopy.
2: Looking back, perhaps she's been the only human thing that ever gave back love
0: to me.
3: I'm really sorry guys, I'm going to need to take a moment. J.K. Um, Dan, that's, I mean, it's schmaltz heaped upon schmaltz, these kind of, was it Montevani strings in the background? I can't remember, but just like lachrymose excess. I also love that you're hawking a poem about a cat named Sloopy at the heyday of a dog named Snoopy. It's it's just incredible that this was, as ubiquitous 321, it's incredible that this was as ubiquitous as it was, but almost more incredible, I knew nothing about McEwen other than seeing his name everywhere when I was 10 years old, was how he became Rod McEwen. It's really an astonishing backstory. I think we should start there.
1: He... Spent his teens and 20s into his 30s convinced that he was eventually going to become famous, making up for a truly miserable childhood. He, you know, bounced in and out of juvenile detention centers. He was abused by his family and by his stepfather. Um, And and in the wake of that, he he became convinced he he was destined for fame and he spent his 20s basically pursuing it any way he possibly could. He briefly signed a contract with a movie studio in Hollywood and played all these like second banana roles and forgettable teen movies. While he was there, he would, he would write his own fan letters from fake teenagers and send them to the studio every day. He, uh, he recorded album after album of novelty songs or, uh, Beat satires or songs about mummies and uh, and tried to make hits with those. And eventually he actually achieved an enormous success with this very strange album called The Sea, uh, which was his poetry about love and lust. Uh, read against the backdrop of, as you say, sort of Montovani strings and also Ocean Sounds, the number one makeout record of the late <laughs> 60s, an album that rivaled Fleetwood Mac's rumors and catalog sales at its peak. Do you know my friend the sea?
2: He watches everything we do. You, rolling over in your beach bank sleep, me chasing seagulls down the dunes.
1: And then he finally truly became insanely famous in the late 60s with poetry with these random house hardcovers and paperbacks of poems that just flowed out of him with the great ease of the untrained uh, sentimentalist and um and they really connected with this sort of vast middle of 1960s culture. Not the hippies exactly, and not the squares exactly, but everyone else.
2: Dan, you segued perfectly into what I wanted to ask you about, which is this this little thing you throw off about, oh yeah, well, 400,000 people went to Woodstock, but what about everybody else in that demographic and what they were doing? And I was thinking as someone who was just a small child when this stuff was popular, that it speaks to and is in conversation with a whole style of kind of um, middle-brow sensuality that was sort of the thing in that period, you know, that there was sort of um, I I don't know, I mean, I'm even thinking of things like William Shatner's spoken word (laughs) albums or (laughs) things like that, right? There was a certain kind of um, appetite for high culture that was channeled through more middle-brow culture. I mean, that would even, I guess, go toward... I don't know, sort of um, pop classical, you know, going to see the pops orchestra or something like that. I, I, this or is all hooked very inchoate, but. Hooked on yeah, Bach. right. Like, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, mm-hmm. I see Rod McEwen, who I remember being on people's shelves, not my parents. They would have been in, like, the Dick Cavett category of people <laughs> mocking Rod McEwen, <laughs> but definitely omnipresent along with, like, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, yeah, right? That, that and uh, and one, books yeah. like that. Um, and, and I just wonder how you see him as fitting into that you know, part of of 60s, 70s pop culture that we've now put in a closet because it's sort of embarrassing to remember.
1: Well, one of the great lessons of reporting and writing this piece was how transgressive he seemed to people coming out of the, you know, early to mid 60s, people who were not, Fully on board with the sexual revolution, but who were still feeling sort of stultified by the, the conventional culture of the day and thought there must be something else other than this, you know, old timey way of men and women and men and men and dealing with each other. Um, and so for them this the sexual freedom and the the gentle license and the kind of soft focus horniness of rod <laughs> McEwan's work really was meant something it really touched them and and trying to as a reader um, tap into what really mattered to those readers at the time even as I reading Rod McEwan's poetry feel intensely embarrassed was like a useful lesson for me in how eras approach the art that really means something to them.
0: I mean, it just feels impossible for something like this to be such a sensation right now. And yet not, as you write about in your piece, um, we live in the era of the Instagram poet, Rupi Kaur. And there is there you know, there, there is sometimes hunger for a type of poetry that is more direct and sincere and, um, about emotions written in verse than, you know, perhaps whatever's being published in poetry in any given day. But reading this piece, I was like, what is this alien planet that was only a few decades ago? Like, what the hell? <laughs> like, it's so hard to imagine the particular set of cultural environments that would have this, like, it does feel different, Ruby Core on Instagram versus, like, this being at carnegie hall annually and being um you know on the covers of magazines and sitting on talk show couches like yeah but she sells books of-
1: not in rod McEwan quantities but it but she's she's the closest approximation to him that we have at this point yeah
0: but is it quite so horny and goopy isn't it a little <laughs> bit more self actualizing <laughs> like it feels I, I've when I read her stuff, I'm like, all right, I, that
1: that doesn't make me feel like an alien in my own land,
0: in <laughs> the way that reading his poems do.
1: That's definitely true, and yes, the self actualization part of it, I think, is crucial. What McEwen's poetry was almost always about was about like loneliness and desperation in a right. way that that when you read it now, understanding more about his life story, he was gay. Um, you know, he presented himself as sort of cheerfully omnisexual, uh, as one of the people I talked to, Stephanie Burt said, small r romantic, but truly he was gay. He had a life partner who he lived with for 50 years, uh, a, a very supportive man, seemingly, um, who put up with a lot from Rod McEwen. but he couldn't, you know, in the, in that era, he didn't feel he could go the Liberace route. And so he just went this other route of not really talking about his true life and his true love's introducing his partner for decades as his adopted brother, um, and, uh, and, and feeling at lost and at sea, even in the years when he was in this relationship. And so when you read the poetry through that lens and then think of it as a kind of voice for this lost, uh, Yearning middle class, um, it makes a lot of sense, but it also doesn't seem like anything that that would ever play today.
3: No, not at all. I mean, Dan, it's, this strikes me as a paradigmatic case of something that touches a public nerve. No one quite knew it was there until the nerve got touched, and uh, goes on to become a you know commercial sensation. You know, as you detail in the hundreds of millions of sales, um, and the opinion makers. Uh, elite opinion makers find it just totally mystifying. So it was contemporaneous to McEwen that Cavett made his jibe and Nora Ephron, as you point out, um, the middle brow's middle brow in some sense, dismissed it as middle brow. And, um, you know, just heaping scorn on it, uh, even as he's producing more and and backing the uh, truck up to the bank. I I was very interested in your if you will, McEwen-esque journey in your process of discovery with both the poetry and the biography and the people who've attempted to keep a flame alive. um, He's found an awful lot of loneliness and abandonment in his afterlife, in a way. And at some level, if I read your wonderful piece correctly, you forged a kind of respect for this brow-destroying, kind of quasi artist who, whatever else is true, like gave solace
1: to millions and millions of people. And was truly sincere in his work. And I think that's in the end what touched me about him. You know, the a lot of the critics of that era, the highbrow critics, what they hated most about him was not only that he was successful, but that they believed him to to be knowingly schnookering all of these idiots who were buying his work. You know, that he was... He was insincere that he was just giving the public what they wanted, a a somewhat ridiculous assertion. When you think of it, when you think of how weird the thing is that he was producing, uh, and as you say, the nerve he was touching that no one even knew uh, needed to be touched until he hit it. But it really seemed to me in talking, for example, to his biographer, Barry Alfonso, and in, in talking to fans and in listening to and reading the work and knowing what I learned about his biography, that in fact, this was the purest expression of how he actually felt about his life and the world. Um, at times, it was shallow in the way that, that he was a somewhat shallow guy, um, but it was never – calculated um you know even in the late years when when he was pushing out book after book of aphorism and some of which he didn't even write in a way of, even those were true reflections of the person that he had been and had become living in a beverly hills mansion um shuffling around in his bathrobe and so i had this grudging respect in the end for a guy who could make art of a sort that reflected his innermost fears and passions, could connect to an enormous audience for whom that art meant a lot, um, and who could, in the end, withstand a lot of withering scorn from, you know, like hoity-toity highbrows. That's a great way to get me on your side, even as I <laughs> feel like a hoity-toity highbrow sneering at your work, um, and and it gave me a lot of respect for a yes, this lost America where something like this could become a huge hit, could become hugely popular, and a person like this, who when you watch videos of him is so obviously a weirdo, could become insanely ubiquitous.
3: Oh, man, that is beautifully said. All
1: right, well, the piece is Rod
3: McEwen was the best-selling poet in American history. What Happened by Dan Coyce. It's up on Slaves. Terrific, terrific uh, piece of cultural journalism and criticism. Dan, thanks for coming back to the show, but two very quick bits of business before we go that I forgot. Um, Just to reassure the listeners that my... Juvenile get off joke actually is appropriate to (laughs) your piece. (laughs) Uh, And also uh, tell us the pub date for your forthcoming novel, Vintage uh, Contemporaries.
1: Uh, Rod was all about making love in his poems, and uh, and and he was about the slow burn, for sure. Listen Maybe to the, the warm, Steve. Burn. Listen to the warm. We really encourage you to listen to the warm. So it was indeed appropriate, and the novel comes out January 17th. It's called Vintage Contemporaries. Thank you for being its greatest on-air advocate, Steve.
3: Yeah, brilliant. Uh, all right, thanks for coming on, Dan. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks.
4: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel, to cooking, to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.
3: All right, now is the moment in our podcast when I look Deep into Dana Stevens' eyes, face to face, and I say, "Are you ready to endorse?
2: <laughs> I feel very Rod McEwan right now. Listen to the warm <laughs> in my eyes. <laughs> So yes, I'm ready to endorse. And first of all, I wanted to, I have a musical endorsement, but before I got into it, I wanted to thank whatever listener it was that for our last summer strut sent us the song by CMAT, Kira Mary Alice Thompson, because as you'll know, if you follow me on Instagram, because of that person introducing me to this wonderful Irish singer songwriter who has just one album so far, it came out this year. I went to see her live with my daughter on her um, on her recent tour of the States. She played at the Mercury Lounge in New York, and it was such a great intimate venue to see her. And I had thought, based on her album, that it might be kind of a low-key show, that it would be sort of a folky acoustic situation, but she actually had this really tight band and was an incredibly charismatic stage presence and just brought the house down. It was so much fun. So thank you to whoever introduced me to CMAT. And in return, I want to introduce you to some of my... Much older music, which did not come out this year, but came out sometime before 1521, which was the year he died. (laughs) And this is actually, it was by pure chance, just as that that was a chance encounter with some listeners' taste. I found this CD on the street, one of those things where somebody's giving away a box of CDs, right, on their stoop went through, pulled some classical CDs, they sat around for months not being listened to, and then, just because it had a beautiful Fra Angelico painting on the cover, I grabbed this CD of de Desprez. I hope I'm saying his name right. This is a French-Flemish composer, not much is lo- known about his life, but he wrote this beautiful, beautiful choral religious music that's all sort of motets with overlapping voices, and I don't have the musical tar vocabulary to describe why it's great, but it's very musically complex. It's wonderful thinking music. You know, Julie and I have talked before about how listening to Bach is a great way to put yourself in this sort of thinking writing mode. Well, I wrote yesterday for hours to this album by Josquin Desprez. It's called Stabat Mater and Motets. Those are the two pieces that are on it. And uh, the group playing his music is called La Chapelle Royale. So, um, yes, found on the street. Love it. If you want to get into some Renaissance listening, you could start there.
3: Uh, Lovely. All right, uh, Julia, what do you have?
2: Okay, well,
0: my viewing of the film Tar led me to re-encounter an incredible New York Times obituary. So there's a character in Tar, Elliot Kaplan, who's sort of an investor, Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. a conductor, but kind of an era But who is he? Like, he, he seems extremely specific, but the film doesn't really dilate on who or why he is or why he sometimes conducts, but is not really a full conductor, what his entree is into the world, what his power dynamic is with her. And he's, he's, um, you know, very well sketched and very specifically sketched. And um, I learned in reading about the film that he seems to be modeled on this figure, Gilbert E. Kaplan, who died in 2016, who I will read here from Marguerite Fox's uh, review, was a financial publisher who had an accidental second career as an international symphony conductor, despite the fact that he could scarcely read music and possessed a concert repertoire of exactly <laughs> one piece. He could only conduct Mahler's Second Symphony, so it's you know the the whole of Tar is about conducting Mahler's Fifth. Um, but he he essentially started this magazine, The institu- Institutional Investor, was like a finance journalist and entrepreneur. And then decided that he must conduct this one piece, like paid a bunch of money to get uh, a, a choral group and a symphony to, and like rented a room so that he could like practice with these professionals. He had a closed uh, performance with the stipulation that there be no reviews. For like 2,500 of his friends that he put on for, you know, a six-figure sum that was just his own indulgence of his own curiosity. And then one of the attending critics broke the embargo and said it was great. And it turned into this crazy career where he like went all over the world conducting just this one (laughs) symphony. But in the most prestigious places, he conducted the Vienna Philharmonic, the London Symphony, the L.A. Philharmonic, the St. Louis Symphony – and in an outing that became the subject of a headline-making fracas, the New York Philharmonic. Uh, anyway, this this entire obituary is an extraordinary portrait. And although I would not change anything about tar, it did lead me to wonder, like, why not make
2: a
4: movie about <laughs> this
2: guy? <laughs> Didn't people ever ask him, "Hey, do you know this tune?" <laughs> I mean, who didn't who, why did wasn't he? No, challenged? they knew. He was no he was tr- he
0: was transparent about being this arvest, um, but his curiosity was deeply sincere and and a lot of serious music people felt that he knew and understood this particular piece, which is apparently an incredibly complicated musical piece um like as well as the people who know all you know know all the music in the way that the people in the film did so anyway i would encourage everyone to go read gilbert e kaplan publisher and improbable conductor dies at 74 um and to contemplate uh, the tar sequel that's just about this dude oh
3: that is so great that is so good um all right so we found on this show we found our way to this very definite sweet spot which is the music of the jazz pianist Red Garland. And what makes it so tricky to find other artists or records that, that you know, hit that same sweet spot is that it's so utterly uniformly reliable. You can just click on any Red Garland recording and out comes the most elegant jazz piano. Um, it is... Both music that you can pay intent attention to because Garland was an extraordinary musician, a really, really gifted, really wonderful musician arranger. Um, It's not without a distinctive flavor at all. You can also put it on and kind of ignore it. Um, And in my lifelong struggle to please and earn the respect of Julia Turner, I feel like Red Garland is my one unequivocal Victory, And since then, I've struggled to find more jazz records that have this same oddly bewitching charm. Um, and, Julia, I think i found another one.
0: Okay, okay.
3: So I think McCoy Tyner—and this is what's great about McCoy Tyner, who I've endorsed before, other works by before—the great thing about McCoy Tyner is that he's a musician's musician, had enormous success— um, but not often not as the leader, right? So he's, I think, probably most famous for the work he did on some iconic John Coltrane records. Um, but he had a wonderful career of his own, playing his own stuff. Uh, he has a record called Nights of Ballad and Blues. It's so good. It's so good. And I think maybe, just maybe, it hits the Red Garland sweet spot. this is a record from 1963 you know jazz to its enormous credit like really grew as an art form and it became political in some ways it became compositionally daring and very challenging to a listener's ear it was saying screw you to like we're cocktail music while you sit there and have a drink and pay no attention to us like you know but that said like this is just a beautiful gentle And it's way inconspicuous album, but with all these wonderful voicings and tonal complexities. I just think it's a great record. So check it out. McCoy Tyner, Knights of Ballad and Blues.
0: Okay, Steve, I can't wait to listen to this. I feel like both of you have name-checked some of my favorite previous endorsements in touting these endorsements this week. So if I'm going to get new dinner music and new thinking music in one round of endorsements, like that's major. I'm very excited to check this out, but I need to correct the record. It is not only Red Garland who you have successfully put over into this category of like listenable but not insipid jazz. Um the Out of the mm-hmm. Blue album by Sonny Red yeah. that you recommended a couple months ago is a is a total winner. Like it, it, everyone should go check that out. It's it's um d- different in character but similarly like mood setting but not in a Rod McEwan way and um, you know it merits attention and also will happily play second fiddle while you just chop onions if that's what yeah, you want here, to here, do good, great record um, so super excited to check out this new tip
3: all right well thanks for that Julia and thanks for uh, this great show thank you Dana, thanks so much. How fun and kind of, I don't know, it's just like brisker somehow to be actually physically in the presence of your colleague.
2: Agree. May it be the start of a new era.
3: Excellent. Uh you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant this week was Jessica Balderama. Our producer, of course, is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.